Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The two presidents walking down to the cliffs above Omaha Beach and truly extraordinary. What is so amazing of this is uh, those of us with a collective memory of Ronald Reagan in 1984 and how time has moved on over 40 uh, years. Truly extraordinary as the two presidents try to understand the sacrifice that was given. We'll continue uh, to stay with us. Joining us right now, I am absolutely honored to bring to you the Council General of the United Kingdom uh, to New York, uh, his, uh, Her Majesty's Trade Commissioner for North America, and also the former Commissioner of Singapore. At this moment, to have Anthony Philipson with us is amazing. To the uh, east at Gold Beach were the British and, of course, Montgomery uh, leading the way. Explain to us what this moment also means for the British. Um, if, if I may, I mean, Tom, the emotion in your voice as you talk about the fact that they're walking the way that the soldiers didn't go, I think has been a constant theme of the commemorations this week, uh, and also actually over the last uh, 75 years. But uh, the, the moment that really struck me was when Her Majesty the Queen was speaking in Portsmouth yesterday, yes. talking about the sacrifice of the wartime generation, which of course she was part of, as the President recognised in his remarks at the State Banquet on Monday night. And she talked about the resilience. And of course, you know, there's a, much has been written, much I hope will be written about the, the extraordinary special relationship between the UK and the US but also our other partners in that extraordinary endeavor 75 years ago today. Um, you know, we, we've seen the films, we've read the books, we've all watched Band of Brothers, but it's, I think, just important to remember what exactly happened on that day and the process that it began of the liberation of Europe, and that's what you're watching there on the screen today. And as George Will says in his new book, quoting Abraham Lincoln, then and on to other worthies, and then time slips away. That's really what we see here at Normandy today. I think the 85th. The 95th commemoration. Well, but this, I think, is the important thing, as the Queen said, is that you know, those soldiers who are there today, they're 94, they're 95. I, I tweeted last night about an extraordinary moment watching a 95-year-old former paratrooper mm -hmm. repeating the jump. With the gentleman um, on the back yeah, of the gentleman. Exactly. Yes. Now, he's 95. Uh, will he be... Mm -hmm. this, this generation is passing away. But this is why it's so important that we tell their story, whether it's in the books or by commemorating the events as we're seeing now, uh, because the people who lived it are inevitably, inexorably, right. uh, passing away. So we must we keep the memory alive. Rick Atkinson out with his wonderful first volume on uh, the War of the Rebellion. This is where the colonies left the United Kingdom a number of years ago. And you look at the shared history here, which goes towards your true expertise in trade relations. What is the media getting wrong now about the tone of coming post-Brexit UK-US trade discussions? Well, I think the way I would look at it, I, 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 honestly, I think we need to get behind the headlines. We need to sort of, uh, we need to talk about the, uh, the extraordinary relationship that we already have between the UK and US, whether it's in terms of trade, investment, people-to-people -people links. Um, and then we need to look to the future. 
then we need to think about what are we going to do with this relationship? How are the UK and US going to continue to build that transatlantic corridor as we leave the EU? Uh, it will be part of our right. global engagement, both with the EU, with the US, with other parts of the world. I think we have uh, a shared commitment to a system of ru global rules that are free and fair, as the Prime Minister and the President talked about in their business roundtable at St James's Palace uh, on Tuesday morning. That's the agenda that we need to get to. That's the substance of it, and that's what we need to start to map out. Let us talk Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II. Elizabeth II is a successful Ricardian experience of, of a global trade, a multilateral world, and all that we learned out of World War II. Elizabeth I was a mercantilism of another time in place. How do we get the dialogue on a bilateral basis and on a multilateral basis back to the good of the Atlantic Charter and forward? I think you start there. You start with the principles. You start with the values that underpin our relationship, not just the UK-US, but the others who are at their commemoration uh, today and were in uh, Portsmouth yesterday. You think about the world that we want to create, both the world that we want to live in, the world that, you know, whether it's climate change or how we deal with uh, increasing sort of global challenges around resource scarcity, and we, we also talk about global peace and security. Council General, if I could interrupt, what is so important here is a belief of the President that for the U.S. to win, we must take unit trade from Europe where a guy like you, uh, within your modern history at Oxford, knows that new trade can be additive upon present trade. How do we get to a trade agreement where good new American-UK trade is additive upon EU-UK trade? I think the way we do it is we set out a sort of a comprehensive holistic agenda. If you look at the, uh, the Trade and Investment Working Group, that uh, Secretary of State Liam Fox and Ambassador Bob Lighthizer have been pursuing since the summer of 2017. It includes talking about our bilateral relationship, but it also talks about what we can do to help our SMEs in the here and now, and it also talks about what we can do together to address global no. challenges. We need to take that into those global fora and keep talking about what's our, what makes our lives better. Council General, thank you so much. So this is with the trade on top. Tom, Mexico in a really tough spot. In a tough spot. And, what's, and I, I would just kill to get Shannon O'Neill on today. I'm sure we'll have her in the coming days, uh, John. But uh, this is, you go right to the point, which is this is a complexity of any given country. It happens to be on our border, but some of the simplistic phrases that we're hearing in analysis are uh, just just wonderfully naive about the complexities of any given country. So do you just assume that we go 5% Monday and escalate as the months progress? Let's bring in Neil Shearing. He joins us here in London, Capital Economics Group Chief Economist. So Neil, is that the assumption at Capital Economics? That my working assumption in all of this now is that we, I think if you'd have asked me that three months ago, I would have said that we'll find a way through both on the Mexican side and the China side. There'll be a way through these talks and we'll get a, 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 an impasse, if you like. I don't think that's happening now. I think these t trade tensions are going to continue to escalate. We're in a new era of globalization uh, and we're in a new era of growing protectionism. The one caveat to that, I think, is that Mexico may fold. Mexico has far more to lose in this than China does. Uh, it exports to the US 25% of GDP. And as you rightly touch upon, it has its own domestic, uh, both political and ec economic challenges too, particularly Pemex oil production internal decline, despite the previous gov government's uh, efforts to try and reverse that. So I think Pemex really has to give something. It has to do everything. It, uh, Pemex, Mexico has to do everything it can to try and head these tariffs off. Yeah. I suspect they'll 
the, my hunch is they'll find a way to try and do Your that. Your hunch is that we could avoid 5% Monday. US, US, China, actually not least because for the US it's a bigger deal as well, right? We're just getting into the phase where US companies are thinking about their investment plans for 2020, uh, election year. Um, are they going to be investing if there's big tariffs going on affecting all those supply chains back and forth over the US-Mexico border? I think the US has perhaps a bit more to lose. US, China, much different scenario. Much different scenarios. And we've all seen the briefings that show, uh, to use a fancy word they use in capital economics, the ginormousness of the Mexico-U.S. relation as well. technical term. We all know, and particularly out of our academics, that tariff increase is a nonlinear exercise. Explain the reality of going 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 on tariffs. Where does that impinge on a trade system? Well, you're right. I think the key point is is exactly that, that it's non-linear. And for as lo- the longer these tariffs, and particularly this uncertainty persists, the greater the costs uh, start to build, and they build on an exponential rate. Doesn't investment rate. grind to zero? I'm not sure whether it grinds to zero, but certainly investment in particular sectors is going to be mothballed. If you're an auto uh, producer right now, you're thinking about your supply chains crisscrossing the U.S.-Mexican border, uh, semiconductors, electronics, consumer goods, all these type of things. I think that's where it hits. I mean, does it hit healthcare? Does it hit energy? Not so much, no. But I think in particular sectors, it has a really big effect. And it's not the tariffs that are doing the damage. It's the uncertainty uh, and the second round effects, particularly to financial conditions, so too, Neil, that's doing the damage. Here's a difficult question. And our Michael McKee has asked this question of several FOMC policymakers. And Mohamed Al Arian asked the question this morning, too. Can Fed rate cuts achieve the Fed's goals? If this is the environment you describe right now, do rate cuts help? I'm not sure they necessarily do. I mean, they certainly don't do any harm, I don't think, at this stage, unless you're going to get into a world in which it's going to reinflate financial bubbles and cause instability further down the road. We're not there yet. Uh, the, the key challenge and the key issue from my side now is what's happening on the supply side of uh, the US economy. This increase in productivity growth that we've seen over the past 12 months, is that for real? Is it a late cycle blip? Is do you it think something it is? structural? My gut says that it's a late cycle blip, but you know, who knows? This, this is stuff that economists really try to wrestle with, and it's quite difficult. Um, but, but you're right. To the extent that tariffs do damage on the supply side of uh, the global economy, monetary policy has nothing to do with that. So let's get your thoughts on monetary policy in Europe. The ECB on tour today. They're in Lithuania. We get that decision at around 40 minutes' time. Interest rate guidance, currently no change through 2020. Nobody thinks the ECB is going to hike this year anyway. What can they do today of anything at all? Well, I think there's two things. One is they can reinforce that guidance, perhaps to shift to a slightly more dovish language. The second thing is around Teltros, what the terms and conditions that will be attached to those. I think we're moving into a world in which pretty quickly next year, the ECB is starting to have to think again about more quantitative easing. Restart what does that, that mean? What do they do to do more quantitative easing? Start buying Siemens stock? Well, they've still got room to purchase sovereign debt within their limits. Um, so this is a call from ABN. ABN Amara are out there with this call. They think the ECB restarts QE well, in January. Okay, what are we dare, dare say shares? They've got a big call out there. Dare I say, Capital Economics, that we've had this call for the last three months. We think, think ECB, early 2020, we've wow. said. They've got enough room to restart it on a modest scale, just doing sovereign debt. Uh, and then you're right, Tom, there's corporate debt, there's equities, uh, there's ETFs. Oh, the ECB are going to be drag kicking and screaming into that stuff. But I think there's enough space that they can do more sovereign debt purchases. Buying equity. I mean, I've talked to Rick Reader of BlackRock about this, who actually, thinks, who actually thinks it could be a good idea to buy equity. Because Why? if you look down the capital stack right now, 
the debt of these companies is not the problem. It, it's the cost of the equity, right? The trouble is that you're dealing with a. Um, we've seen this from Japan actually. You, once you start to get into that stage of the QE, you've got I to be dragged kicking and I screaming into that. You. And the ECB is an incredibly conservative body, as we know. Um, I still think there's room they can they can do more sovereign debt purchases. I think and that's it's where go first. capitalism okay. that is getting kicked and screaming all the way yeah. down f- through Frankfurt and through Tokyo, yeah. through Washington. No searing. Thank you so much. You sound so depressed now, Tom. No, I'm not depressed. We're dashing at Red Eye Home. We'll be there for Jobs Day tomorrow in New York and thrilled to be back. Over the decades, there have been any number of George Will books. Um, I find interesting, at one point years ago, discussion of how he would fish with one of his daughters. I find interesting the great George Will quote, something to do with adults do not make children, children make adults. But then there is a book that is a tour de force. He has finally delivered that in his 78th year. It comes off his graduate work at Princeton of a few years back, and it is the conservative sensibility. I will not mince words, folks. Rogan Rogan's book, The Third Pillar, and Simon Johnson's uh, wonderful book, Jumpstarting America, are my books of the summer. This will be one of my two uh, books of the year. The conservative sensibility. George Will, thank you for joining Paul Sweeney in New York and me in uh, London. George, I, I look at the conservative sensibility and I've got to go right to the immediate politics, and we'll discuss this in the half hour. You are brutal as always. We can dignify our present disputes among small persons of little learning. George Will, how did we get here? <laughs> well, de Tocqueville would say this is what democracy looks like. Uh, but the fact that it's untidy doesn't mean that it isn't uh, dignified also. You know, a woman making her maiden speech in the House of Commons recently in Britain said, democracy is like sex. If it isn't messy, you're not doing it right. And uh, George, this is radio. Be careful. I, I know. This is anything goes, though. George, I look at, at the conservative sensibility. I know Paul wants to jump in here as well. The reason it's one of my books of the year is because you've had the courage to write not just for conservatives, but those of the debris of Woodrow Wilson. You write for progressives. You write for the liberals of another time and place. What can progressives and liberals learn from the conservative sensibility? They can go back to 1964 when I cast my first vote for president for Barry Goldwater, to the memory of whom the book is dedicated. And progressives should look at the numbers. In 1964, 70% of the American people said they trusted the federal government to do the right thing all the time or almost all the right time. Today, that number is under 20%. As the government's pretensions have grown, its prestige has plummeted. And progressives who want to use the government for large enterprises, I'll dispute with them about the virtue of that, but that's their stand, they should be as concerned as I am about the fact that government today seems to have lost all sense of its proper scope and actual competence. So, George, just give us a state of where you think conservatism is today in America. Well, frankly, it's, it's an orphan without a political party, but an idea, a set of ideas with a distinguished pedigree that derives momentum from Hamilton and Jefferson and particularly Madison and Lincoln above all, doesn't just disappear because the party that at one point was its vessel has become cracked a little bit. 
uh, the ideas are still valid. They have to be argued for, however, and uh, that argument will continue until the Republican Party comes to its senses or until someone else comes along to uh, to be the representative of that persuasion. Well, how did we get to that point where the conservative, conservative movement in the U.S. has been effectively orphaned by the party, by the Republican Party? How do we get here? Well, uh, Mr. Trump, when he ran for president, said pointedly, it's not called the conservative party, it's called the Republican Party. And he set out to say that uh, much of what Republicans have believed, particularly in free trade, most dramatically, uh, he said, by the way, you don't believe that anymore. And appallingly, most of them said, okay, we don't believe that anymore. Uh, They sort of nibble at the edges of presidential discretion and applying tariffs, which means raising taxes on Americans unilaterally without any letter hindrance from Congress. But basically, the party has become against Madison's great assumptions, a teammate of the president. What Madison had in mind was an equilibrium among equal and rivalrous institutions with their own sense of dignity and their own sense of purpose and their own sense of independence. That has has gone away, largely because of the legacy of Woodrow Wilson and the progressives. The progressives were amazingly forthright at the turn of the 20th century in rejecting the founders. Woodrow Wilson said, don't read the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. It's mere Fourth of July rhetoric. The founders' view was first come rights, then comes government, that government exists to, in the language of the Declaration, secure our rights. The progressives said, no, actually, governments give rights as dispensations. They are approved areas of of autonomy that the government likes. With us, George Will. The new book, The Conservative Sensibility is a Triumph. It's written off of his graduate paper of just a few years ago at Princeton. It is exceptionally thoughtful. I'm going to say it one more time. It is not only the obvious book for conservatives lost in the wilderness. It is a must read for those lost in the middle of America's politics and also for liberals and enthusiastic progressives as well. George Will, I'm going to go back to the doom and gloom that George Will's associated with. Paul, you're going to love this. Our listeners in Boston are going to love this. Many thoughtful Americans worry that the republic peaked a little early and has been trundling downhill since Bunker Hill. How do conservatives, George Will, lose the gloom that it all ended a few years ago? Well, my, my book is in part explicitly a summons to pessimism, but pessimism <laughs> is not fatalism. By pessimism, <clears throat> I mean there's so many ways things can go wrong. The democracy and free markets are not the default position of the human race. They are complex social structures and government structures. It's a paradox, I know, to say, but laissez-faire is a government project. It requires courts, contracts, arbitration, uh, laws against fraud, information dispersal, all the rest. So uh, the, the simple truth is that this is a complex system we're trying to defend. My book is, uh, particularly the chapter on political economy, is as robust a defense of capitalism as you'll find this side of Hayek. And Hayek, mm-hmm. of course, figures largely in my, in my book. Uh, my view is that capitalism does not just make us better off, which it manifestly does, it makes us better. That the argument between Hamilton and Jefferson right. was an argument about what well, kind of people we would be. 
I want to swing the discussion forward, George, because I know Paul Sweeney wants to get into the clear and present with our present president. Let's swing forward, folks, to my ute. Look, look, there's this particular fringe, and their one fundamental problem is they simply never accepted the New Deal. Moynihan of New York. And there's a whole tone in America that's never gotten over FDR, and that's the raison d'etre of certainly a new Republican Party. Well, there's no question that the New Deal is an accomplished fact. It's interesting, however, that Ronald Reagan, who came of age during the New Deal, never assaulted New Deal institutions or approaches to government. It was the great society that he had in his sights. The New Deal's signature achievement was Social Security, which is something government knows how to do. It identifies an eligible population and mails out checks to it. That's fine. When government goes wrong is when it says it's going to deliver model cities or head starts or meaningful work when it undertakes to minutely regulate us to paradise. Uh, Government is a blunt instrument, a necessary instrument, capable of much good, but blunt nonetheless. George, are you surprised that the the Republican Party, some of the conservative members of the Republican Party, haven't maybe pushed back on some of the current president's maybe questionable actions, actions that may not be in the conservative uh, vernacular, such as free free trade. Are you surprised we haven't gotten, the Republican Party's been so silent, I guess. It's been silent with a few honorable exceptions. Uh, Senator Portman of Ohio says, all right, if we're going to pretend that (laughs) imported Volkswagens are a national security threat, shouldn't we have the Defense Department rather than the Commerce Department establish the criterion for a national security threat. Uh, Senator Toomey has been pushing back of Pennsylvania Republicans saying we have, over the years, we have spun off far too much power investing presidents of both parties from Congresses of both parties mm-hmm. with enormous discretion that enables them to do essentially legislative things such as tariffs which are raising taxes unilaterally. George, we're with us. I've got time, George, for only one more question. John writes in and says, I really don't care about the conservative sensibility. Please ask Mr. Will about the baseball sensibility. (laughs) George Will, Cubby, how do we save baseball? Well, you've got to do something to cure the following. In 2018 season, for the first time in history, there were more strikeouts than hits. The ball is put in play, that is not walk, strike out, or home run, Right. put in play once every four minutes. You know, Red Smith once said, baseball's dull only to the dull. Unfortunately, <laughs> baseball is becoming dull because it's becoming one-dimensional. We've got to find, I think markets work. I think there will be a demand for Rod Carews and Wade Boggs and Tony Gwynn. I'll see that. And the demand will be met. Paul, do you see how his voice changes when he gets away from (laughs) Madison and Woodrow Wilson? I only write about politics to support my baseball habit. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm in London. I'm going to put out one of my books of the year, The Conservative Sensibility. And with that, writing with George Will in the Washington Post, there was a Tour de Force article a few, oh, five, six, seven days ago on the strikeout to walks ratio. Just an absolutely spectacular effort. And we'll get that out as well. George Will, of course, with the Washington Post and many, many books over the many decades. And I can just simply say that the conservative sensibility is a tour to force. George, thank you so much thank uh, you. this morning. Well, Tom, you know, one of the things we've seen since the financial crisis is the big New York investment banks 
getting more and more into the commercial banking side of the business, the retail side of the business, if you will. Interesting, UBS just recently is out there now offering ultra high savings rates to try to attract some cash That's from their original. existing clients. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like, and I think soon maybe you toast- get a toaster. I'm not sure. Yeah, if you I was going to toast- say soon toaster. Soon toaster. So we would talk, when we talk investment banks, Tom, we always talk to Shanali Basic, Bloomberg News investment banking reporter. So what's UBS doing here, Shanali? They're ultra high savings rate, you know, in the U.S. particularly, they're a lot smaller than the, a lot of, you know, the Morgan Stanley's, the Goldman Sachs's of the world. So they're saying at least through the end of September, we're going to offer you a rate that's higher. So long as you have $10,000 to put in our bank and away from another one. And so they're definitely trying to lure money away from the big U.S. contenders. They need to do this, frankly. Um, they have a lot of growth in Asia, but their results in the Americas were we're flat in the last quarter. And so it's something that if, if they don't do it, it they're going to have a harder time once volatility kicks in and people start saving instead. So it's it's interesting. Am, am I right in kind of my view that, like, gosh, even Goldman Sachs, you know, the, the blue chip corporate investment bank uh, is getting in more and more into the retail side, the individual investor side of the business. What's the trend here? You know, one's got to wonder if this is a very late cycle behavior, right? Their biggest corporate clients right now, um, and you know, we were just talking about this. I've been doing investment banking meetings all week, and everyone's pretty bored. There's not a lot of big ticket deals going on, and the ones that are happening are either tied up for a year in a regulatory hurdle or falling apart. And so, when you know, big corporations are under a lot of pressure here, and maybe deal making, especially this big ticket deal making, is slowing down, then can you lean on the individual? investor and then the, the you know the mom and pop investors really to to make money for the bank yeah I, okay so I'll, I'll go there but you know I hit her like you you go out to the Hampton Coffee Company to pick up a cup of coffee or John's Pancake House Montauk wherever you know the power players like you go Shanali what's the mood into the summer among Wall Street banking I don't see it is it there like I was saying, pretty bored. I'm sure that, you know, it's funny you mentioned the Hampton. Yeah, but bored means nobody makes any money, right? Nobody makes any money, but, you know, while you're not making money, you kind of wait for a better September ahead. Things are slower in the summer. People are taking time off. Uh, Ever since Memorial Day turned, things were just slower, right? I was writing four stories a day, and now it's just a lot less going on. Well, within that is bank mergers. I mean, Commerce Bank and ING, I know that's off your beat. Mm-hmm. But I guess they're picking up the thrust, and we've got to figure out what to do with Deutsche Bank. Very importantly, Paul, I missed this. Deutsche Bank had rallied this morning, now 5.99 <laughs> euros. I did not see that. I know. That's you, a were, dr- you were on that six-euro watch for a long time. That, well, that may be because Sonali showed up to get in front of the mic. I don't know. Deutsche Bank. <laughs> South, what is the mood in Wall Street? Come on, Sonali. You're, you're wired of totally. What are the young Turks of Wall Street doing right now? It's funny. The young Turks. I was with a bunch of young Turks yesterday, <laughs> which Shocked. is a very exciting thing. Uh, again, not a whole lot going on. You know, it, it, think about how much bad news there is, right? We were talking about deals falling apart, too. But the hedge fund industry, you know, we're still <clears> waiting for some big launches, but there hasn't been a whole lot going on in that industry either. IPO world, right? We're finally seeing Uber hit uh, above its IPO price. So in the IPO world is where there's some real excitement going on and people are ready to kind of be in every New York hotel at these road shows um, coming up and some really sexy ones, right? Peloton, um, Endeavor. There's some really exciting names that uh, make for really great stories, but but also, frankly, something just to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. Yesterday, we had uh, Mark Schaefer, the co-head of uh, Global 
global M&A for uh, Citigroup in talking about the business. He was speaking at the Bloomberg uh, panel yesterday, uh, investment panel in New York. Uh, he was saying that, you know, the year to date M&A volumes are down pretty significantly after well, a, give me a really strong Paul. January. Yeah. Give me a percentage to one digit. Yep. And you, it's interesting. It's, I, you know, I was just wondering, are, are they claiming when you talk to M&A bankers, are they saying, oh, it's just a trade uncertainty or it's slowing economy? What's kind of. The, you know, the excuses this time around? It's a little bit of both and, and volatility, let's not discount it. I know it's nowhere where it was at the end of last year, but it is a little higher this year so far. Um, you don't want to pay for something <clears> when you don't know what the price is really going to end up on, especially yeah. for stock for stock deals. Um, you know, you're mentioning a, a Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank. The prospect of financial deals are very exciting to people, both for um, smaller fintech companies and, and you know, consolidation across Europe, right? The fact that Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank die right but now commerce bank is talking to ing again that's again more excitement <laughs> for the investment bankers and a nervousness for the staff because right. deals usually mean some job cuts but are there still too many firms doing too many things where a given wall street firm finale will cut out a hunk of business just because they say we don't want to be number four we don't want to be number three we don't want to be number eight that's the big question. We, we think that there's going to be a lot of consolidation. It, what does that hard. mean? But what kind of consolidation? It's really hard for the biggest banks to keep getting bigger. There's a lot of talk um, earlier this year about a lot of banks trying to get bigger under the Trump administration in particular, in case the Dems take over in the next cycle. Uh, they'll have a harder time. Uh, for our there, audience, but. those are Democrats she's <laughs> talking about. Thank you. Sorry. But, uh, you know, if they're going to get bigger, they might as well get bigger now, whether that means through buying companies or what UBS is doing and diversifying into businesses that they're not as big at already. Yes, the big want to get bigger for certain, and that will wipe out the smaller end of the pie. To be clear, we just got off a bunch of job cuts as well all across Wall Street. That's kind of where I was going to go. Are, are, are we done? Is Wall Street done with the job cuts? You know, Wall Street can be a little fickle. Right. <laughs> it really depends. You know, in the next couple of weeks or so, we're really going to see the next second quarter numbers come out. So far, James Gorman, for example, at Morgan Stanley had been pretty optimistic about what the second quarter looks like. People yeah. are trading. People are not staying away from the markets necessarily. Um, you know, we talked deal makers are staying away, but, but generally traders and, and bankers are not staying away from markets. So hopefully that means not too many job cuts ahead. Sonali Basic, thank you so much. Writing on Global Wall Street for Bloomberg. And now we take a different tact uh, with a book. We have Alan Kruger's Rockonomics. And of course, Professor uh, Kruger told me much about this book over the last number of years. Uh, his excitement of looking at the music business, which was an inquiring mind. We lost Alan Kruger in March, his untimely death. And joining us this morning to um, to look briefly at Rockonomics, a wonderful book from Princeton University uh, Press, but also to speak of Professor Kruger is Austin Goolsby. He is uh, a gentleman from Milton Academy and uh, out of University of Chicago in the Booth School. Austin Goolsby, of course, like Professor Kruger, a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Austin, I spoke to you yesterday. Thrilled to have you on uh, Worldwide uh, today. What permeates Alan Kruger's Rockonomics is what permeated his study of terror, his study of his core economic theories, his study of any number of things, which is just an insatiable curiosity and hear about music. From your great, great uh, 
uh, knowledge of Alan Kruger. Why did he choose music? You know, well, Tom, first of all, thanks for having me back, and thanks for for giving me a chance to talk about Alan and, and this book. Alan always loved music, you know, as you know, and as you said there in the opening, he loved talking about music, he loved listening to music, and he was a, you know, absolutely world-class economist, and I think he couldn't help but apply his economics to this thing that that he enjoyed so much, and and. And in the end, that's that's where the book came out. The book is basically going to popular music um, and talking about how popular it is right. and measuring that, but then just analyzing the economics of it and the ways in right. which the music business reflect kind of these broader trends that have happened in the labor market over and, the last 50, 100 years. Um, and, and that, that, so that's kind of the premise of the Okay, of the but what's, what permeates the book, Austin, and this includes your work at Chicago, is this, this, and all of us are living this right now in music and outside music, is the technological overlay. He's got a whole chapter in streaming, yes. and that's going at light speed. We saw the Apple announcement two days ago. They're going to lose iTunes. I mean, what do we learn about technological change in music that goes over to what all of us are confronting in our lives with our families. Super important topic, obviously, and clearly. Um, I think one of the things that that this suggests is as the technology of, of digital copying, let's call it, and digital distribution makes it easier to reach these big markets, it does have a tendency to lead to winner-take-all superstar um, type factors in the labor market. So, so in the book, Kruger shows that the share of the worldwide uh, music revenue is getting more and more concentrated among the very most popular uh, artists. And if you're if you're struggling in the middle, um, you you are struggling. And part of that is from the technology change. Um, and exactly. there's a there's an ironic bit in there for anybody who's who's aficionado of economics, which is the great economist Alfred Marshall, kind of inventor of supply and demand. In his original writings, he made a big deal about there are some industries and jobs that are scalable and some are not. And the example of a job that was not scalable he had was a very famous singer. And they said, well, obviously, everybody can't listen to that singer. They have to go town to town, and only the people who could hear them, because there were no microphones. And uh, and now, you know, however many years later, it's the complete reverse. So now if you add an example of what somebody where technology makes their market bigger and bigger, makes for more winner take all, you would say, well, what about Beyonce? You know, she can she can sing Ooh. once and, <laughs> and record it and everybody listen. So, Professor, how does a new band or a new artist break in today? It used to be just try to get a record deal, then a record company promotes you. How do the new uh, the new bands do it? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's gotten harder. That's part of the thing about the superstar model is it's gotten harder to be a super. If you get to be a superstar, you make more than you've <laughs> ever made before. Yeah. 
Um, but if you're just starting out, the the, the marketing yeah. component has gotten more difficult because you don't have the radio right. side and the labels are n- are not investing as much yeah. in the discovering the bands. Austin, I want to go to the legacy of Alan Kruger, and to do that in this short time is grossly unfair to Professor Kruger and, frankly, to Professor Goolsby as well. Let us cut to the chase. Kruger and Card in the middle 90s changed the dialogue on what the most basic people in America should be paid. We're not talking about minimum wage lifts, Walmart and Uproar at their annual meeting, et cetera, out to $15 an hour. Did Alan Kruger win the war of the minimum wage? You know, that war continues, but he certainly won a major battle uh, and, you know, took over one continent in the in the old game of risk. You know, if you if you could get control of one of the continents, uh, you, you're you're on your way. And I would say he was part uh, one of the leaders of a of a movement that got us to rethink employers and employees and the thinking of maybe employers have a lot more bargaining power, monopoly power than than we thought before. Maybe it's not as competitive each particular employer as we thought. And if it's not, then textbook kind of examples like, hey, if you raise the minimum wage, it automatically leads everyone to get fired kind of thing um, are not accurate. And uh, so there, there are many aspects of labor economics that Alan was a leader of. But this whole space, which continued up to more recent times where he was one of the first people documenting the way that employers were signing non-competes. And not, I'm not talking about you know, law firms or, or things like that, like literally McDonald's signing, making their employees sign non-competes, forbidding them from working at other fast food restaurants, um, and showing the ways that that allowed employers to kind of depress the wages of the people who work for them because they didn't have to worry about um, that you would go to competitor. All of that goes to to Alan's intellectual curiosity and yeah. working on important problems. You know, that's why President Obama identified him as, as a leader, made him chair of the CEA. Before that, President Clinton um, had made him the chief economist at the Department of Labor. He was he was a rare bird in that he was yeah. a world-leading economist researcher, but he, but he was very practical. Well, Austin Goldsby, thank you so much from uh, Chicago uh, today in support of the late Alan Kruger's Rockonomics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.